good morning. I was going to talk about um, a program we've got going on right now called Natural Church Development, but I'm, I'm going to, we'll do that later. I'm just not feeling it so much right now. Um, uh-oh. Um, the guy who is, uh, I guess, to your right is a man named Sam Adams, uh, and not the beer manufacturer <laughs> or the patriot necessarily, uh, although he certainly is a patriot. Um, Sam is, was the first openly gay mayor of a major U.S. city. Now, the gentleman on the left is Kevin Palau, and uh, he is the son of evangelist Luis Palau, you may have heard of. And um, they both live in Portland, Oregon, which um, a lot of people consider to be the most lovably weird city in the United States. Just to get a sense of how lovably weird they are, they are um, I don't know how else you would describe a town where every year 8,000 people bicycle naked through the streets to remind people of the impact that cycling has. And the mayor essentially says, just wear shoes and a helmet. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. So, we have Christian evangelist and a gay mayor. Now, as you, as you might imagine, their worldviews are miles apart. But they are good friends. And it might seem like an unlikely friendship. But that's what Kevin believes to be a symptom of being a Christian. And simply following Jesus' command to love. And the love didn't stop there. You see, Palau and thousands of other Christians around the entire Portland metro area partnered and continue to partner with the Portland political leaders and with school officials, with the LGBT community, and many others to seek the welfare of the city, to quote Jeremiah 29. One example of that is Roosevelt High School. Now, uh, after the Crips and the Bloods gangs moved into the neighborhood, the school was impacted by shootings, by drugs, and by other gang-associated problems. And many people did what we probably would have done as well, and that's move away. Let's get out of here. And so by 2008, Roosevelt, which was a high school that was designed for 1,600 students, had a student population of 450. The facility was dilapidated. The football team lost every game they played for five years in a row by an average of 46 points. It was the last place in the world that anyone would want their kids to attend. And then South Lake Church got involved, and they mobilized more than 1,000 volunteers, painters, landscapers, and logistical support. And in one weekend, the congregation of Southlake performed a major makeover of the entire Roosevelt facility. But it didn't end there. The Christians from Southlake continued to invest in Roosevelt and not just a facility, but they invest in the lives of the students too. 
the partnership became so strong that the principal of Roosevelt High School invited the South Lake Church volunteer coordinator to set up an office at the school and to serve as the Roosevelt High School's on-site volunteer coordinator. Now, one South Lake church member is a gentleman named Neil Lomax. And if you followed the NFL, you would know that he was a former NFL quarterback. And he decided to take a position as the high school team's offensive coordinator during a time in which his own son played at another high school in Portland. Well, they turned the football team around, and they even made the state playoffs. This from five years of losing by an average of 46 points a game. But it's not just the football team that turned around. The whole school is heading in a great direction as a result of the involvement of South Lake Church and others. And it turns out what happened at Roosevelt was catching. And as of 2014, there were more than 250 official church school partnerships in Portland. And Christians are impacting the people of Portland in many other ways, including engagement with victims of the sex trade, engagement in the foster care system, medical clinics, prisoner reentry programs, and gang violence prevention. <clears throat> I don't know what God's doing this morning. But when Kevin Palau reached out to Sam Adams, this unlikely story is what resulted. And it's a story that relates directly to and perhaps even proves the third affirmation that we're going to talk about. And that is this. The Spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible. Now the text we're going to look at today in regards to this, and, and I guess just to maybe recap for a second, this is the third in a series of messages that we've been doing on having hard conversations with people. Okay, um, And so just sort of continuing that line, you know, first week we talked about the fact that while we may understand truth, we do not understand perfect truth. God has perfect truth. We have a portion that we understand. Um, now I'm drawing a complete blank on what last week was. <laughs> um, but regardless, this week, it was good, really. I just talk. I don't listen to what I'm saying. Um, I should probably write that down next time. But anyway, we've now gotten to this one where the spirit can create unity where it once seemed impossible. And so we're going to look at a scripture today, which is actually, the scripture itself is the culmination of a story uh, in which the two sides that we're talking about are about as far apart from one another as, as they could be. And yet in the end, remarkably, there was unity. And so the, the passage of scripture we're looking at is from a, the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 30 through 31. And it said, The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. 
And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Well, that's kind of cryptic, I guess, if you don't really know the rest of the story. So we know the end, but we don't really know how all, where all this started. And so let's first of all talk about the challenging situation that this story presented. And so Acts 15 tells us the story of really the very first great church council. And it was in Jerusalem, and it really laid bare this whole situation that was causing this problem. Now, the stakes are very, very high, and both of the groups involved have really dug in their heels. There's one side that's claiming the authority of Moses in giving the great revelation of Yahweh to the people of Israel. Well, the other side claims that the gospel has reworked the church's relationship to Moses without denying his importance. What was the issue that they're dealing with? Well, it was this. Do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Now, those claiming the authority of Moses says, well, of course they do. And by the way, they have to keep all 613 of the Mosaic laws and the Ten Commandments. The other side said, who claimed that the gospel changed all that, said, no, they're saved by grace. And by the way, so were you. This was a very deep divide. It was truly a conflict of biblical proportions. You got that, didn't you? <laughs> and see, because this didn't only strike at the heart of the two groups' identities, this had implications of what the church was going to really understand the gospel itself to be. Imagine if it had gone a different direction. And so now we'll look at the Spirit's participation in all this. And so this issue caused a fairly major personality clash between two of the major titans of the church, Peter and Paul. And the question, as you can see, figures into almost all of Paul's letters. He touches on this in some way, this idea of being saved by grace. And so, but Peter, who scholars believe really sort of sat more on the side uh, of being in favor of circumcision and, and of following the law, is sitting there, and there's this debate that's going on, and both sides are, are going at it. And I would imagine that he's sitting there, and he's listening, and I would imagine he's probably praying. And he has a change of heart. And I believe in that moment that the Holy Spirit gave Peter uh, some divine insight. And he saw the facts as they really were for the first time, or at least was willing to confront them. Because what he says, what the facts were, he said, were that by demanding that the Gentiles obey the Mosaic laws, they were, and I quote, placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That was, to my mind, that was a divine revelation because it finally occurs to him, wait a minute, we never could do this. And if we couldn't do it, why should we expect them to do it? And so Peter, who now is speaking the truth in love, 
changed the whole direction of the debate. And then James, Jesus' brother, steps up and he has even additional insight that he's gotten from the Holy Spirit. And so God has now provided him with really the perfect solution or what, might, what some might call a compromise of sorts. So this group decides to write a letter. And this is sort of an open letter, um, obviously to the Christians in Antioch, but to everyone, in essence. And included in the letter was this compromise language, which starts at verse 28 and says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Now, some really see these requirements as sort of falling under the, the no offense principle that Christians should live by. Uh, and you would, as you might imagine, most of the places that there were Gentile believers that were practicing Christianity also had sizable Jewish communities practicing Christianity. And so they're really trying not to alienate either group here. And so the council is asking Jewish Christians to accept Gentiles without any discussion about law-keeping, while at the same time asking the Gentile believers to refrain from the things that would have been extremely offensive to their Jewish brothers. Now, as is always the case, scholars are going to debate and disagree over kind of what was the genesis of this particular set of regulations. Um, however, I tend to like the explanation that really draws a comparison to the fact that these were all rituals that were performed in pagan worship. Um, and so that's really what I think James had in mind when he's writing these things. So, you know, the drinking of blood, ritual prostitution, and other elements um, that were not necessarily practiced at all the temples, but were at some, all those things... Uh, were practiced at least some of the time in these temples. And so it would have been most obvious um, that this is probably the most offensive form of continuing pagan behavior for any Christian to indulge in. And it would be asking a great, and it's uh, hardly asking a great deal for any Christian, any follower of Jesus to, to abstain from doing those things. And so the result was unification. They exercised their faith and they trusted in the Holy Spirit. And I think our calling in this cultural moment really involves faith as well. See, there's going to be times when it seems like the unity of the church is in question. When it feels as though it's been bent to the point of cracking. And I think it's helpful in these moments to remember one of the things we talked about the very first week, and that's that Jesus prayed precisely for unity in the church. And I have to believe because he knew this day was coming. Is still come. Not only has come, but is still here. And so the more unified that we can be, the more that's going to demonstrate the nature of God 
will call unbelievers into faith and, to, and lead actually to great joy in seeing how the Holy Spirit is at work in all of us. So you're involved in a conversation with someone. And you go, well, all right, but what if unity just isn't possible? Because the other side is so wrong. Well, you might be right. You know, we do long for unity in the church. And yet, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And there are going to be times when someone's conscience requires them to break fellowship and to separate from others. And I have, uh, actually he's led worship here a time or two, my friend Sam, uh, who some of you may remember. And he and his wife Robin were members of a Methodist church for probably 20 years. And... um, finally decided to leave, I don't know, about six months or so ago. And the issue was um, the United Methodists' continuing and ongoing acceptance of the ordination of gay and lesbian clergy. And, you know, Sam and Robin were very faithful through this process, and really for the entire time. They went through all kinds of stuff at the church that I think others wouldn't have necessarily stayed for, but they sort of understood we're here until God tells us otherwise. And so they wrote it out. And I mean, they did everything that you would ask of any church member to do before leaving. You know, they talked to the pastor numerous times. They participated in events where they talked about this. And, you know, the pastor was a female who was definitely on the liberal side and, and was perfectly okay with the direction the church was going. And, you know, they finally had to meet with her and said, we, we just can't do this. And so it's sad when that happens. But sometimes it just does happen. And so we pray for grace and for healing in that body when something like that does occur. So... You may be right, there may not be any chance for unity. On the other hand, you may be wrong. And it's amazing how things that at one point seemed like insurmountable barriers actually get resolved over time. Real faith is trusting God in the moments that we don't see a way forward. If we can find the faith to pray for a sick person, then maybe we can find the faith to pray for unity with someone who is profoundly different from us. And third, I think it's helpful to ask this question when you're dealing with a disagreement. What difference does this disagreement make in our practical day-to-day relationship and ministry? Does this, what does this really affect? Okay, so this kind of gets to the heart of the issue. And sometimes if we'll consider this question, even though we don't see a way forward at the time, then maybe 
responding to this question delays the separation long enough to give the spirit time to do his work. As I was pondering this message, to me, the issue really came down to the fact that we have a very um, powerful tendency to put God in a box. I found this quote by my, uh, my good friend A.W. Tozer, who I seem to quote almost every other week, but the man had some wisdom and just seemed to put his finger right on the pulse of issues. And... Uh, said we often try to put God in a box. The God who fits in our boxes isn't the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I was telling Jen Duras earlier that I one of the illustrations that I saw when I was looking just for something to fit with this was a picture, and it was a cartoon, and it was of a little man, and he had a box at his feet, and he's going... Look, God, at this box that I've made for you. And in the picture, you know, the man is about this tall, okay, in relationship. If I were to put this on the floor next to my foot, so all you see is the little man, his tiny little box, and the foot of God. And God is saying to him, Tony, we need to talk. And I've got to be up front in this and say, I hate to admit it, but my default position, more often than I care to admit, is to put God in a box. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we all do. Darlene is right. And I think it's time to stop. Do we have so little faith that we have to confine what God can do in every situation? I know part of it is just it's our, it's our cultural mentality that I've got to have it now. Right, you know, the immediacy of social media and technology, um, you know, you know, w we were irritated years ago when someone didn't call, return our phone call in a day or two, okay? Now, we're irritated in about 30 seconds if someone doesn't respond to our text message, okay? And so we've cultivated, not necessarily through our own doing, but just kind of by participating in the technology that's available, to the shortening of our time frame of, that we expect something to happen. And I think as a result of that, we put God in a box. Because we think if God doesn't act right now, if he doesn't deal with this situation within five minutes, well then he just must not exist. I've talked to some prophetic people and actually took a class earlier this year in the prophetic. Do you know 
someone who has studied the prophetic, do you know what their definition of soon is? When, when scripture says that God's going to do this soon, do you know what the actual time frame of that is? It's generally about 10 to 20 years. Right, John? So when the Bible says, I, I will do this soon, we're talking 10 to 20 years, right? And we're denying the existence of God after about 5, 10 minutes. Because God hasn't answered my prayer, God hasn't done this, God hasn't done that. I prayed once and it didn't happen. Oh, poor me. Well, you could pray again, you think? And, I, you know, as I do so often, I'm talking to myself here, too. I mean, I understand this about myself, that I have this tendency. And I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm trying to fight my way out of it. It's hard, you know. So don't, don't feel like I'm castigating you, talking down to you, berating you in any way. I just want to point out the hypocrisy sometimes that we operate within in believing in this God of the universe who created everything around us, who has th this kind of immense power and authority, who created such incredible beauty. And yet, you know, after a day, if we're generous, we don't have our answer, well, we'll try something else. And that's generally after we have already tried everything else and have finally decided, oh, you know what? I guess I could pray about this. Right? Right? Am I, I mean, tell me if I'm not speaking truth here. But I understand this. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time. They, uh, and then we act surprised when God answers the prayer. Oh my gosh, God answered the prayer. Wow. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, Shazam, Gomer. <sighs> We're a funny people. You can't help but laugh at how fickle and simple-minded we are sometimes about this. And I bring all this up simply because I want to encourage us. Approach life with more faith. Amen. You know, believe that God will do what he says he's going to do and understand that soon does not mean tomorrow or next month or maybe even next year. I was even thinking about the concept of soon being in a 10 to 20 year framework for a God who knows no time. And I'm thinking, all right, how does that work exactly? <laughs> you know, when you're eternal and, and, and time is, is infinite, time, there really is no concept of time, then how do you even understand a concept, well, he's God, but... When you say soon, it's sort of like, well, what soon mean? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh no. But I think he does, he says things like that, you know, because we need some, you know, some sense of that. But um, anyway, Wayne, you want to come back up? So I just want to, I really want to encourage you that um, dig in. Have more. Just decide to have more faith. That's the only way you can get it. You can't buy it. You can't rent it. You can't borrow it from someone else. You can't use your parents. You've got to, you, you have to get it on your own. And you get it by just deciding you're going to have it. It sounds really simple and it's really hard sometimes to do. But I'm telling you to dig in. I mean, I realized that this message was geared more around the idea of having a hard conversation, but I just felt like this was kind of where it was headed, to this idea that so often we give up on things way too soon. You know, we're almost, well, I guess we are officially, we're almost 10 years into this, this church. Do you think it's not difficult for me sometimes to look out and see that the number of people rarely ever changes? The faces do sometimes. The numbers don't. 10 years. 10 years of my life. And sometimes when you think about it, you're like, is this all I have to show for it? And that's such a wrong way to look at it. That's so wrong. And I've, I've, apolog- I've repented and apologized to God for even thinking that. Because then he starts to show me, well, do you remember what this person said? Yeah. And what this person said about the church? And, and, and then he starts to bring those stories back into my mind of the way people have said it. I mean, it's not like there's hundreds, there's a handful. But the way those folks have said that this place has impacted their lives in some way and it's kind of like the old story about the starfish on the beach familiar with that story some of you are so some of you aren't so a man is seen on the walking down the beach and there's all these starfish that have washed up and he's picking one up throws it back and he's picking another one up and throws it back and someone comes up to him and I mean there are literally hundreds of these things all over the place and somebody comes up sees him doing this and comes up to him and says what in the world are you doing that's not going to make any difference he picks up another one wings it into the ocean and says made a difference to that one Have faith. Don't put God in a box. Don't limit what he can do. I've seen too much in my time to know better than to put limits. You know, and I've resolved myself to the fact 
that if we end up with three services on a Sunday or if it never gets any bigger than this, I know I'm where God wants me to be. I know I'm doing what he wants me to do. And that's okay. I really had the sense, if I could get some folks up uh, to pray right now, because I had the sense that what God wanted to do today was to, to touch, really to heal anyone that is having pain. Now, I don't know if that means emotional pain or physical pain. So we'll just kind of go for both. Why put God in a box? He just said pain. George, do you have a light? So um, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll kind of use that as, a, as, a, as our dismissal point. And if you wish to leave after uh, you know, we sort of do a sort of a blessing, that's fine. If you want to stay in worship, Laney's going to continue to play. And you can just kind of stay and quietly worship and uh, talk to God. But if you've got pain of some kind, I would strongly recommend that you go and get prayer from somewhere because typically God doesn't bring something like that up unless he's planning to do something about it. And so I would be very surprised that if you've got pain somewhere, you go get prayer that you don't get healed from it today. So I would just take that as your mindset right now. Don't put God in a box. All right. Father, I thank you for today. And on behalf of all my friends gathered here today, I, I just humbly apologize for how often we do try to limit what you can and can't do. Father, we recognize that you can do what seems completely and totally impossible to us. What from an earthly perspective looks like nothing we've ever seen before and is, is so dark that we can't see the hand in front of our face. But Lord, I also know that it is in those situations that you love to work, to show us how much you love us and to do things so that only you can get the glory for it. For it's in those situations that we know there's nothing thing we did. This was all you. So we just lift that up before you, Father. We, we ask your forgiveness. And we pray that you would increase our faith even as we go forth and try to appropriate it. Let faith be our first response and not our last. Let prayer be the first thing we think of and not the last. And help us to rest in a trust that you know what is best for us and will always deliver on that, regardless of what circumstances may tell us. So I give you thanks, Father, and I give you all the praise. I ask you to bless all of these, your people now. Bless them as they leave here. Bless them as they head for home or a restaurant or wherever they may go. Bless them as they head to their jobs or to uh, whatever this week uh, has before them. 
Let them operate in all of those, all those spheres out of a sense of faith. So we give you thanks and praise. And we just ask all of this now in Jesus' name.